0: So, I, I want us to go to Matthew chapter twenty-four, and um, some of you guys are already well familiar with this passage of scripture. And so, the reason why I had gone there in 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 Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter four from the beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, is because. I wanted to preface by, by, inex- by exhorting us to be willing to endure doctrine that is sound. Uh, to be willing to endure uh, 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 the teaching of the Word of God no matter where the conclusions lead. The reason why I say this is because I know particularly regarding this topic of end times, this may be a complete bad taste in your mouth because some people don't like end times there there's there's three uh, uh, categories you may fall in either it's a huge distaste because you're temperamentally you don't like controversy and you know that the subject is surrounded with controversy so you're like ah, I don't want I don't want to touch that but let me just submit to you that's not a good take to have. You know, one of, the, and then let me let me mention the other two, and then let me, uh, the other two categories, and let me mention why the first category is not a good category to take. Then you have people that are neutral towards it, uh, you know, you know they're just like that about it. They're indifferent. They're neutral. <clears throat> and then you have some people that have such a wonderful taste of it. That's all they listen to. And then they they they, you know, it's good to be studious. And there may be a season where, hey, you're delving into this topic real well, and I commend you for that, but for the totality of your life to be saturated with just end times doctrine is not a healthy thing. It's not healthy to have that sort of taste for any one particular topic in scripture. Does that make sense? No. The only person that you're to be utterly saturated with is God himself, not just one facet of his truth. Amen, somebody, can we agree to that? So now, the first reason, the the first category, the reason why that's bad, remember listening to Jordan Peterson, one of the advices he gave to a, 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 a marital couple that was experiencing some problems, he says, you want to fight. Now, he wasn't talking about physically. He says, typically people that are more agreeable in nature are passive and therefore want to evade arguments. He said, no, you can't evade an argument. He says because what what evading an argument does is it 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 it's taking the position of passivity. That is to say, I I'm going to I'm going to be passive about this. I'm not going to deal with this, and I'm just going to allow them to win, right? For the sake of the couple. Right, but, but what happens is that person who does that repetitively, now, there may be times that you need to do that. Hey, this just isn't the hill that' we're, that we should die on today, right? But you create microaggressions that ends up turning into resentment because you don't speak up, you don't do anything, you don't argue towards each Now it doesn't now let me say this because a lot of people are like, oh well, you know we're not supposed to argue. See, there's a difference between having an argumentative spirit. And to argue to argue means to reason and if you want to contest me on that and I'll say this to both but I've studied philosophy for years formally been formally trained so I know what constitutes an argument and uh, my professor drilled this in us that being argumentative is not the same thing as arguing Now, in modern culture, we say they're arguing when they're shouting at each other. But you must understand that the term can apply in a formal debate. They're arguing. Do you see the difference? So ultimately, context determines what we mean when we say arguing. Does that make sense? So when we speak of a couple that's arguing, right, In a good cordial way of wanting to resolve, not shout at each other, but for the purpose of resolving a problem and conflict, you need to do that. Because when the problem or the conflict is resolved, the fights will be less. Does does that make sense? So the more problems you solve, the the less arguments you will have. So that if you, all you do is avoid the argument, you avoid the problem. You, if you avoid the problem, you avoid the argument. If you avoid the argument, you pile the dirty clothes, so to speak. I'm not going to look at them dirty clothes, right? <laughs> they can stay there. Well, they keep piling up. Until you're so inundated with dirty clothes, you don't know where to begin. Amen. Does that make sense? And so some of your relationships have dirty clothes, and some of your some of your theology has dirty clothes, and you just don't look at it. Are we following? Because I'm not hearing any feedback from y'all. Right. I know some of us are doing things, but uh, you know, I, I I you know I I need to know that we're on the same page here. Um if you agree, type down Amen below. Let me know where you're from. (laughs) Let me know where you're tuning in from. Let me know. Let me know in the chat below. They don't they don't ever read the comments though. You know you've noticed that? What they're really saying is, hey, let me use this as a scapegoat because I just want you to boost my video and the algorithm so disingenuous dude gosh just say it hey can you just type a bunch of nonsense so you can boost my video now <laughs> be honest man like they don't even they don't ever read though do you have you noticed that amen so Matthew 24. Now, we're, we're going to be speaking, uh, I want to I do this teaching on the end times, and let, I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as possible. And so, if you happen to have any questions, maybe write them down on a piece of note paper. Now, I want it to be exclusive to relating to this particular topic, because there's so many things that can be said, but hopefully we can uh, stay focused here. Um, so if you have questions, write it down and save it to, to the end. So <clears throat> let's Matthew 24. Now, this is typically referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Okay. And uh, this is end times. Now, when we say end times, uh, what we mean, uh, another term for it is eschatology. And uh, eschatology is a word that is derived from the Greek word eschatos. And it, eschatos means last things or end times. Okay, so when we speak of eschatology, we're speaking of uh, the doctrine of last things. So, Matthew 24, now beginning at verse 1, it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Okay, first of all, I want you to take note of the fact that his apostles are doing what? Right? Uh, They came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Okay. Now, what building is there referred to? And I want you to ask yourself this question. It says Jesus left the temple. Okay. So, it doesn't mean he left the Buddhist temple in in Malaysia. It doesn't mean that he left uh, the the temple in Mecca. Right? And this is hermeneutics 101. The Bible was not written to you. It was written for you. So who was he writing to? And to whom does this apply? Right? Jesus left the temple of Solomon. Okay? Now one of the problems we have is that we don't... And when I say we, I don't mean necessarily us here. But I'm speaking of the church generally. We don't read the Old Testament. So, we don't even understand the history of the Jews. Right? By and large, we don't. All we know is Jesus died for me. He he, he was buried, rose again, third day, I'm saved. That's that's the extent of all that we know. And and we can't point to a verse other than John 3 16 to justify that doctrine. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? So <clears throat> they left that temple, the temple of Solomon. Verse 2 it says, Do you see all these things? So now he's telling his disciples, Do you see all these things? What things? The building. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, okay, we see it. Alright. He says, he asked, Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Okay. So what did Jesus here say? Okay. This temple that you're looking at will be destroyed. Not one of these stones will be left on another. Is that is that clear thus far, my brothers and sisters? Are we following thus far? All right. So, or or no? All right. Cool. So he's saying that's going to be destroyed. Okay. Not a third temple. Jesus didn't say, hey, you know, you see this temple right here? Uh, but what I mean really is a third temple that's going to be built in 21st century. Do you do you see that, apostles? Uh, No, because we're not there in the 21st century yet. He's not talking about a third temple. He's talking about that temple there, right? So he says, it's going to be destroyed. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately. Tell us. Okay, they're like, man, we want to know. what. When is this going to happen? You must understand, brothers and sisters, that the temple was the place of worship. It wasn't just a nice, expensive edifice. It wasn't even like a nice church or a nice cathedral. Because the thing is, <clears throat> to the Jew, that is where God dwelt. God dwelt, and don't give me this philosophical jargon of omnipresence. Well, technically God is everywhere, you know, because God said regarding specific, uh, specifically regarding the temple at one point, he says that it became Ichabod. He, he, the glory left, the glory departed, right? So God's glory can depart. This is why even David said, take not Thy Holy Spirit from me. Right. So so but that's where God dwelt in the temple so that it was the most sacred, most beautiful place to be because God wasn't anywhere else. He wasn't in the temples in Athens. He wasn't on Mars Hill. He wasn't amongst the Romans. He wasn't amongst the Aztecs. He wasn't amongst the Americans or the Europeans. He wasn't amongst any of them save his people in the temple, right? And so worship could never be disassociated from temple. Never. Because worship, properly defined, assumes Giving and sacrifice, and guess what? A Jew couldn't sacrifice on their own. They had to give their sacrifices to the priests, and the sacrifices were done at the temple on the altar. Does that make sense? And altars are necessary for what? Altars are necessary to enact covenants and to service and maintenance covenants. So do you see that the whole significance of the old testament the old covenant is predicated upon the existence of the temple because it is at the temple that that old covenant is serviced and maintained through the priesthood and the altar and the offering up of sacrifices Does that make sense so that if the people of God were true to the covenant and did what they were supposed to and were obedient and offered all that they needed for the Day of Atonement and so on and so forth. God will be in keeping with his covenant with his people. But then what what happened later is that they disobeyed and then what God divorced Israel. And we see this in Jeremiah chapter 3. And then he, of course, uh divorced judah and banished them into exile and so on and so forth but you have to understand that 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 the significance of the temple is that was exclusively where worship was done worship wasn't even done in the synagogues teaching was done in the synagogues but worship was at the temple is is that understood so it's not like hey a church is destroyed because a lot lot of times the connection we want to make is like it's like our church is being destroyed no because you can worship anywhere else Because these are the days of the new covenant. That, Like Jesus says, neither on this mountain will you worship. He says, for the Father seeks for true worshipers that will worship by the Spirit and in truth. So, the the, the destruction of a church is not the equivalent. Because you can as easily build another church or worship in a forest or worship in a tropical island. It doesn't matter. It's non-locational. But this was locational. Is that understood? (laughs) he said tell us they said so this is very important to them this is why i say tell us they said when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age now i want to point this out there are three things they asked jesus jesus mentioned to them nothing else except the destruction of the temple up until this point is that clear right what is verse 1 and 2 all about? It's all about the destruction of the temple. Does he mention anything else? I want you to take a careful look at that. Is he mentioning anything else? Such as, you know... Uh, 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 no. Okay, cool. So, then where are the apostles getting... Uh, the, the Why are they inspired to ask Jesus about three separate things? In addition uh, to... Uh, two additional things, in addition to the destruction of the temple, because they didn't merely ask him what what was the dist- uh, uh, when will the temple be destroyed. That wasn't the only thing they asked him. Is that clear? What were the two other things they asked him? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Do you guys see that? So, okay, that assumes then that the apostles connected the end of the age and the coming of the Son of Man with the destruction of the temple. Let's read it again. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? So the this there is one thing. Right? And what is the this there? It's the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? But remember, up until this point, Jesus mentioned nothing of his coming, neither the end of the age. You wonder you want to know why? Is because from the perspective of the Jew, they understood that the temple represented a particular age, namely the Mosaic Age, such that if that temple was destroyed, then that would mean the end of that Mosaic age. And they're largely drawing from Daniel. This is why later in the text, uh, 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 Jesus says, uh, and when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So, what Jesus is here speaking of concerning the latter times is not disassociated from Old Covenant promises made to Old Covenant Israel. In fact, Paul says that he preached and taught nothing save the hope of Israel. Does that make sense? So Jesus, and this is what a lot of dispensationalists, dispensationalists will teach, is that Jesus was introducing an entirely new doctrine. But it actually wasn't. How do I know that? Well, because Daniel spoke of all that Jesus is prophesying about. Look at Daniel 7. Look at Daniel 9. How how did the Jews know to hope for the Messiah to begin with? It's all in Daniel. Okay, but in Daniel it's also talking about the cutting off of the Messiah. And it's also talking about the appearing of the Antichrist. So, this is nothing new. This is not a new doctrine, right? That Jesus somehow just revealed and ta da here, you know. No, he, he, he's speaking about the hope of Israel, about the coming of the Messiah, his cutting off, and as well as the appearing of the Antichrist and the destruction uh, uh, of him, right? And and also the, the ushering in of, of, of the new and eternal age. Now, let me let me stop here. Uh, I, I want you to understand that. Let, let me let me prove this uh, if I can somehow. Okay, here we go. Stay there in Matthew twenty four. Are you guys following this far? Um, Amen. Look at Matthew chapter 12, uh, but stay there in in, uh, Matthew 24, please. I need you guys to see this just so you know that I'm not introducing foreign concepts or teaching anything bizarre or strange. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 through 32. Again, Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. This is what Jesus said. And so I tell you every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Okay. Verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So what is that showing my brothers and sisters? Is that sin? See, a lot of people. I remember I used to read this when I was a dispensationalist, uh, and so dispensationalists. I don't have time to go into the whole doctrine, but basically, they're a large, uh, largely they're proponents of of the rapture doctrine. I remember I used to think, "Ah, oh, this is confusing," because I thought because I was told the age to come was heaven, but. So people could commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in heaven. Because if the forgiveness of sin can be offered in the age to come. Then that means that sin. That the sin that could potentially be forgiven can be committed in that age. So are we prepared to say that sin is going on in heaven. And beyond that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is being done in heaven. I don't think so. But nevertheless, Jesus knew of two ages. Now, we have to define that age. We have no right to merely assume. Now, even if you read extra biblical texts, what I mean by extra biblical is to say that it's not biblical, but there are things that are in addition to the scriptures, even ancient rabbinic texts, there are ancient rabbinic texts that suggest that there were two ages. One was defined by the age of Moses, and the the following one would be defined by the age of the Messiah. And they understood that that age would be an eternal age. Does that make sense? Okay, so now you must understand that the time in which Jesus mentioned this, it was still the age, the Mosaic age. It was still the Mosaic age. And the reason why is still... This is why, for example, when he cleansed the leper, he says, hey, go offer a gift commanded by the law of Moses to the priests. They were still obeying the law of Moses. So, the age that Jesus is speaking of there is the age of the Messiah. Or the new age. Um... And it's the Greek word aeon. Now, sometimes people say, you know, now go back to Matthew 24. Because, as I've said, if, you know, this is why I think it's sometimes it's good to have uh, the same translation. Because if you have the same translation, there, there won't be, there will be less misunderstanding. You, If you didn't get the same translation in our reading from the King James Version, what your translation says, when will be the end of the world? The only I don't understand why the King James translators translated that way, I'm sure it had a lot to do with the fact that it was translated in 1611, so that's hundreds of years from our time. But you must acknowledge that in the Greek, it's not the word cosmos from which we get the English word world, it is the word aeon, and the word aeon is the word age. In fact, I want you to, look, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, some people say that the new age was ushered in by the death of Jesus. But that that didn't usher in the new age. Um, so let me say this too are we following this far when we speak of the end times or the last days people typically think that it's the last days of the entire world the only problem with that is it cannot be justified by scripture Because there is nowhere in the Bible that speaks of the end of the world. Now, I understand that people are going to go to Matthew chapter 5. They're going to go to 2 Peter. And they'll go to Matthew chapter 24. Now, 2 Peter speaks of the destruction of the elements. And by the way, the elements there is not referring to the four elements of the world. It's referring to what is spoken about in Galatians chapter 4 and Colossians when it speaks of the elemental spirits, uh, it speaks of the elementary or the uh, the elements, it is associating that with the temple um, and the law. I don't have time to unpack that, but suffice it to say, that's uh, what it's speaking about. Now, Matthew chapter... Well, okay, so Kezron's saying that in... You have to be specific and, and, and tell me which passage you're referring to. Um, if you're referring to 2 Peter, or you're referring to Matthew 5, or Matthew 24. Because in Matthew 24, the word earth... Okay, 2 Peter. Well, I will get to that at the end. And I already know that those are the verses that people are going to go to. 2 Peter, Matthew 5, or maybe Revelation 21... And then Matthew 24. Um, we'll get to that because I want to stay uh, here in Matthew 24. And then I'll answer questions afterward. Um, <clears throat> but if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Look at what it says here. Uh, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the end of the ages has come. Or the NIV says, the culmination of ages. So, Paul is understanding that the culmination, in other words, it was not fully consummated by the time that Paul wrote this. Now, the word there, ages, is the word aeon. It's the same exact word that is used in Matthew 24 when the disciples asked, when would be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Okay, so here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul is saying, okay, the Israelites were written as examples for us. And the us there are the same us upon whom the culmination of the end of the ages have come. Now, who's us? Let me ask you this question. Are you included within the us? No, you're not. Because Paul wasn't talking to you. Who is he speaking to? This, this is why I said people think the Bible is some abracadabra magic book. No, come on, man. Just because we become Christians, don't lose common sense. He's speaking to the Corinthians. The culmination of the ages has come on us. The Corinthians, Paul included. Okay. So when now go back to Matthew 24. So, when we speak of the end of the age, when we speak of the last days, the last days, or the last hour, the end times, the last days, or the last days of the end of the age. Okay? So, remember then, what I pointed out again in Matthew 24, that the disciples did not disassociate the end of the age from the destruction of the temple and neither did Jesus so that when Jesus spoke of the end of the temple, he lumped along right with that, the destruction, uh, excuse me, the end of the age. Is that clear now? Uh, <coughs> one might contest that one might disagree, but textually speaking, On a textual analysis and linguistical analysis, there is no other conclusion that you can infer from this immediate text. You are bound to conclude that... um, So, you're bound to conclude that the end of the age was to occur at the destruction of the temple. Right? Amen. So continuing forward and see this, this is this is what I mentioned earlier is that we we can't get upset with Bible we, we can't, you know, just, okay, this goes against what I'm, what I've been taught. So I, I got, I'm going to just leave. But I, I don't, I don't, how's that? At one point, have I introduced and say, hey, this teacher over here says this, uh, or, you know, the Bhagavad, uh the the Indian text says this, or the, you know, the, New Age says this. No. We're just looking at the text and reading it along, and and we're coming to the same conclusion step by step together. Now you're free to disagree, but if but only on the basis that (coughs) the scriptures disagree or my logic is not sound. But as again, as we're going step by step, we're seeing very clearly, okay, or the disciples associated the end of the age and the coming of the Son of Man with the destruction of the temple. Right? Now, there's so much to go into because obviously this is an entire chapter. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go verse by verse. But I'm, you can go back and read it later. Um, but Jesus mentions birth pains. Jesus mentions uh uh distress he mentions you know uh false messiahs he mentions uh, uh the apostles being hated right uh being persecuted um now look at, look at verse 14 though it says and, and And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. The end of what? The end of the age. It's not the end of the world. Because the Bible, while it prophesies uh, about the end times, it never prophesies about the end of time. Right? Now, I understand right now some people might have a bunch of passages that they're thinking of in their head just like I already knew and that's why I spoke out in advance because I already knew someone was going to go to Second Peter or to go to Matthew 5, go to Revelation 21. I already know this. And it's not to flaunt or sound arrogant but it's just, I just called it out in advance just so you know, hey, hold on, hold your horses. I already know that you're going to go there and I have something to say about that. But discipline yourself for... A moment so we can stay within the immediate context does that make sense so he's not speaking about the end of the world he's speaking about the end of the age all right so don't 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 go elsewhere right now so now you have to understand look let, let me show you luke chapter 2 verse 1 because people say you know oh uh you know he said the whole world there's still a, a, a tribesmen somewhere that, um, you know, after 2,000 years that, you know, the ministers just have not come to. And that's why the end of the world hasn't come. But the only problem with that is that's actually not what it's referring to. He's not talking about the whole entire globe. Now, I want, I want to show you Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And this is, see... A lot of times we have uh, black and white thinking when it comes to the scriptures when it's convenient for our doctrine. But that's not how the scriptures are read. Neither should they be approached in that way. When you read the scriptures, you have to have a very nuanced uh, interpretation. Nothing in, in this world is black and white except math and logic. If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. One plus one equals two. This is very black and white. But we're dealing with literature here. And we're dealing with ancient literature that was written over 2,000 years ago. In an entirely different culture. A culture of which you don't come from. Right? And so if from just a preceding generation from mine or a generation after me, in my own culture, there are terms that I don't know that they're referring to Right? Because there's a gap between them and I. And so how much more from an ancient text, from a civilization and culture of which you did not grow up in? Is that understood? So, Luke chapter 2 verse 1, look at how the word world is used. Uh, uh Give me the ESV, please, babe. Because one of the things about the NIV, there's two different translation philosophies. There's dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence. And dynamic equivalence sometimes will help the reader better understand and will insert words that are not there in the Greek. The formal equivalence does it too, but they try to do it as less as possible. And so if you read the NIV, it says the Roman world, but actually in the Greek, the word Roman is not there. It's inserted to help the reader understand uh, what is actually being said because of the context. But if look at here, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So he went to uh, America. He went to South America. uh, Canada was registered. Philippines was registered. Europe was read, everywhere. It was registered. The whole world was registered. Was it? See, this is the dynamics of scripture. Is sometimes things are assumed by the author that the reader doesn't assume. He's assuming the Roman world. That's why if you read the NIV, the translators help you to understand that by inserting roman. Does that make sense? But but that's not there in the original Greek, okay? Then we know that context and history necessitates that we don't interpret it as the entire world, but rather a restricted scope of the world. Namely, the Roman world. So when we go to Matthew 24, and he says, uh, This testimony of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. Okay. Now, when will the end come? The end of what? The end of the age. It will come at what? The coming of the Son of Man. Now, let me prove it to you. Okay. Look at this. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Because people say, they keep insisting, no, the tribesmen that's still, you know, in the, the mango tree saying, "Uga booga, we still have to preach to him. And until, you know, there's still that one guy that's running away from all the evangelists. That's, that's what's holding up the world. He's running away from... All... That's why the end hasn't come. <laughs> no. Look at Matthew chapter 10. I want you to understand the significance of this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Because, look, if all your life you're told a a, a dog is a cat, when someone says, hey, uh, that's actually not a cat, that's a dog, you're, you're shocked. Because how many Sundays, if somebody every Sunday is saying, hey, this dog right here is a cat from the time of your birth, and you build a whole doctrine around it and you rally against those who dissent to that view you're going to you're going to be persuaded psychologically there's something that psychologically happens to us when we've been told something for so long you know just read any modern psychology on it it's called psycholo- it's called confirmation bias when when you when you've been taught something for so long and you look for things and sources to justify what you've been taught all this time to, to confirm your paradigm so you don't feel like out of control of something because what happens when your whole paradigm shifts you feel like whoa what, what have I been thinking what has what happened your world comes tumbling down we want to avoid that psychological dissonance so we only get sources that confirm what we want to believe does that make sense so this relates back to what I was preaching on earlier And I was hoping that it would safeguard us from just leaving. Um, (laughs) But I guess the word of God doesn't always work. The traditions of man, the Bible says, makes the word of God no effect. Right? So don't allow your traditions to affect the word of God. Because it can make it ineffective. But look at Matthew chapter 10 verse 22. Look at what Jesus says. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Who is he talking to? Is he talking about you and me? No. It's written for us so that we can glean from it and say, hey, you know, if it happened to them, there's a possibility it can happen to us. Even though, more often than not, we're not as hated as we often like to think we are. (laughs) I mean, there's some pretty popular Christians, right? I I know guys like Marcus Rogers always talk about haters and all they do is hate. But... You're not having to flee from one town to the next. Okay? <clears throat> so, so okay. Uh, uh, look, look at verse 23. If it applies to you, then why aren't you fleeing from town to town? Because he says right here, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So if you're persecuted all the time, why aren't you picking up your bag and going somewhere else? Why, why, why isn't it every time you get a bad comment on Instagram why don't you go to another town because it doesn't apply to you it was not end to you do, do you understand that this isn't a, this is an abracadabra book okay now look it look at what Jesus said truly I tell you you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So, the whole world, okay, one passage is saying the whole world, but Jesus is saying all of Israel. Oh, the Jewish world. That's what he's talking about. Uh, Unless we just suck at evangelism in 2,000 years, we just can't seem to evangelize Israel. Or there's still that one guy that's hidden in a cave somewhere. He's avoiding every evangelist, or he has the no soliciting sign on his door, right? No soliciting. He peeks out his window, or he has his little, you know, the uh, the what's it called, the, you know, the cameras that you can record for people who come at your doorstep. He has that, and every person that has a suit and tie on, he in the Bible, he just doesn't answer the door for them. I I think we need more courses on evangelism because we suck at it. Because we can't seem to evangelize Israel. Soon enough. I mean, it's a pretty small place. No, come on, man. Don't be ridiculous. Jesus limited the scope of the world to the Jewish world. And he said that the Son of Man would come when this occurred. Now you reference that back in Matthew chapter 24. And what did Jesus say? He says, In this gospel will be preached as a testimony to all nations. Now, you must understand that the nations, he's not talking about The nation uh, 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 of of, uh, the U.S. of A, the nation of this, the nation. No. See, what you have to understand is this is why Jesus says go to Samaria and Judea. So those were nations. Because Jesus was sent to the lost house of Israel and the gospel was to be preached to those who were exiled and were the lost house of Israel. And that gospel needed to be preached to them first before the end will come because uh, 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 it had to be a testimony to them. Right? He had to give an opportunity to repent before, because here's the thing. The end of the age occurred when the Roman army besieged Jerusalem. And this is why in Second Peter it says, Look, what does it say? Cuz I asked the question, what's what, what's holding Jesus up so long from coming? People people immediately go to second Peter and what do they say? Because he wills for none to perish but for all to come to repentance. Okay, but here here's my here's my criticism with that. If he's talking about everybody in the whole world, then the the Jesus waiting for over 2,000 years is not accomplishing His purpose, is defeating His purpose. Because the longer He waits, the more people go to hell. So if Jesus is waiting out of compassion, it's not compassion indeed. Because more people are just going to hell, going to hell, going to hell. And if He waits another 1,000 years, more souls will go to hell. But we don't think about that. You want to know why? Because the, the 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 waiting of the people coming to repentance was a house lost house of Israel, and it was those specific ones who did not yet hear the gospel that had they believed it, they would have avoided being ransacked by the Roman army. And by the way. If you read Eusebius, and you read other ancient historical documents of church history, you will learn that just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, the Christians fled from Judea to the mountains. And what happened? They were spared from the Roman army, whereas the Jews who were unbelieving died. Does that make sense? Wow. So... Um now it, it look at look, go back to Matthew 24 <coughs> Mind you this is all in the same context Uh it talks about the days of Noah Look, look at um, verse 37. Again, same context of the Olivet Discourse. Discussion of the end times. What does he say, verse 37? No, uh, 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 As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. So a lot of people say, "Oh yeah, uh, you know, as it days and it was in the days of Noah, you know, the Christian church needs to get ready, yada yada yada. The Christian church are going to be killed. The only problem with that, ask yourself this question: In the days of Noah, who died? Did Noah die?" No. Who died? The wicked did. So if it was in the days of Noah, why do we keep saying the Christian church is going to die? So what was the context of Noah? Noah was given a message, saying, hey, prepare an ark, because judgment is coming. Okay? He believed, and his household was saved. So when Jesus preached the gospel, why is he telling his disciples all of this stuff that's going to happen in advance? Do you think the disciples just stood in front of the train and said, let me get hit? Ugh. they already told all of these signs in advance that the Roman army was going to besiege Jerusalem. Do you think they were just going to stay there? No, or do you think they were going to prepare an ark and save their household, so to speak, while the wicked were swept away? Does that make sense? So look at. Um, look it Matthew chapter 24, verse 17. Oh let, let's read at verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, so Jesus is getting his eschatology from Daniel. You cannot expect a Jew to read the Jewish scriptures and not speak Jewish things. Let the reader understand. So he's telling you, understand this. (laughs) Because there's going to be a temptation that, especially us today, we're not going to understand it. So he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay. Again, who is he speaking to? His disciples. So do you think the do you think the wicked fled to the mountains? Secondly, you have to ask yourself, why did they flee to the mountains? Okay. Now it's not mentioned here. It's mentioned in Luke's gospel on the same discourse, the Olive Discourse, the end times. Luke's gospel says this and remember Lot's wife. Okay, keep that in mind. In Luke's gospel, he says, and remember Lot's wife. Now look, as we keep reading, he says, verse 17, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not be, take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Their flight to where? The flight to the mountains. Oh, who went to the mountains in Genesis? Lot. And who, who who looked back, wanting to go back. This is why Jesus says, don't get what's in the housetop. Don't try to save all of this stuff when you're going to the mountains. And then who was turned into a pillar of salt and was not saved? Lot's wife. And if you think that was an easy thing for them to go to the mountains, think again. They have to leave everything behind. And it was the Christians who left everything behind. And this is why Jesus says, who he who seeks to save his life shall lose it. it doesn't say he who seeks to lose his salva- he who seeks to save his salvation. It says he who seeks to save his life shall lose it. Does that make does that make sense, Saints? So um So, what is the significance here? Lot had to flee the city and go to the mountains in order to save his life from the judgment that was going to be poured upon Sodom and Gomorrah. The Christian church had to believe the prophecy of Jesus, what was spoken of, in Daniel. Flee from the city to the mountains in order to save their life. Because as it was in the days of Noah... Judgment was coming, and this is why the the Jewish people didn't think it was coming. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage, just like it was in the days of Noah, just like the the Sodom uh, those in Sodom and Gomorrah who, according to Ezekiel, it says. Now the interesting thing is, although they were homosexuals, Ezekiel speaks of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah of not homosexuality. He says idleness, fullness of bread, and pride. So they fullness of bread means that they're eating. And also, drinking. Right? Now, I want you to see here. Verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. When they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from four winds, uh, uh, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, I want you to look at verse 34. Pay careful, clo- careful attention to this. This is something I remember in former years. I used to read and I just would read over. And I'm like, I, I don't know how to make sense of that. But read it. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not Pass away until all these things have happened. So you have to ask yourself this question. What were all the things? Let me, let me be more specific so that we can narrow the question down a little bit. Are all the things there mentioned, the coming of the Son of Man and the destruction of the temple and the coming of the Antichrist? Textually, exegetically. No, it, it is. All the things that have happened that Jesus is speaking of are all the things he's speaking of, including the Antichrist, the coming of the Son of Man, the destruction of the temple, the wars, rumors of wars, the days of Noah. Now, if you want to argue that it isn't all all of those things, then you have to tell me all the things that he is speaking of. And you cannot support that textually to say that he's only mentioned a couple of things, but not the rest. Because Jesus didn't say some of these things will happen. He says all these things. Now, now go ahead. To the end, I oh, wait to the end. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, verse thirty-four says, "Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened." Okay. So he now one of the things that I've seen that people try to finagle out of the way that they try to do it is to try to argue that the generation they're speak, spoken of can extend to like over 2,000 years or speaks of a la- later generation. But The only problem with that is who asked him this question? And we learn who asked him this question in verse 3. So who is he answering? His apostles. So whose generation is he speaking of? The apostles' generation. Now how long is a generation? A generation is 40 years according to Exodus and according to Psalms, and according to Hebrews. So, if we're going to support the Bible with Bible, we're bound to the conclusion that the generation extends no further than 40 years. That's why it says, with 40 years was I angry with this generation. Okay, so, okay, that means that from the time Jesus prophesied, this was around 32 to 33 AD, this generation had 40 years to repent. And you want to know when they died? When I say they, I'm not talking about the Christians, I'm talking about those who believe not. They died in 70 AD when the Roman army besieged Jerusalem. So that was just a few years shy of the end of that generation. Does that make sense? So now I want to I want to show you these other passages that demonstrate that Jesus spoke of the coming of His gener- uh, this, uh, of his coming and the destruction of that temple and the end of that age in their lifetime. Look at, uh, if you're uh, uh, with me, um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. And I want you looking up these passages or at least reading them there in the chat so you know I'm not misquoting these or misreading these. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. What does the word of the Lord read? Truly I tell you, now he's speaking to his apostles. Again. Um, I hope that I don't have to prove that. Um, But if you want me to, uh, verse 23, he's clearly speaking to Peter because he rebukes Peter and says you're minding the things of men and not the things of God. So in the same context, He says, verse 28, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here, so are you standing there with Jesus? (laughs) Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Coming where? Coming to the earth with great power and great glory. So, unless the apostles are still alive and Jesus is still alive, or this happened. You want to see another verse? Um, Look at uh, Matthew chapter, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 14, verse 62. We'll be coming to a close here shortly. Mark chapter 14, verse 62. Now, mind you, I'm only scratching the surface here because there's so many other questions that arise like, what about this? What about that? What about this? I I know I won't have time to go into all that stuff because there's so many questions, but I'm simply just breaking down to you as best as I can, Matthew 24. Um, But look at verse 62. Well, let's uh, a couple of verses before just so we're given the context. Then the high priest, by the way, the high priest was the Antichrist. Because remember in Matthew 24 he says the abomination that causes desolation is standing in the holy place. Okay, what was that? What was the holy place? It was in the temple. If you read the Old Testament, you'll learn that there was a holy place, there was the most holy place. And who had authority to stand in the holy place? The high priest. He had authority. You couldn't just walk up in the holy place. Who do you think you are? Now, uh, Okay, now not only that when you read second Thessalonians, who what does the who does the Bible say will take his seat in the temple? The Antichrist, the lawless one. Now what was the abomination? He offered up a pig. That's what the Bible says in Leviticus to offer up a pig on the altar was an abomination. that's what he did. And if you read the first century history, you'll learn that he did, in fact, offer up a pig in the holy place. Okay? But notice, though, right here it says, Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So who will see him? The high priest. So is the high priest still alive today? Or did he die? Now if he died, how would he see him? Furthermore, how would he see him standing in the holy place? Since the holy place was already destroyed because the temple was destroyed. And what was it destroyed? It was destroyed in 70 AD. So... Um, let me let me let me read two other verses, and I will come to a close. <clears throat> it would it would interest you to know that this event that I'm referring to, 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple, the destruction of one million Jews. And by the way, since we 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 want to say you know appeal to Second Peter and say, oh, the earth will be destroyed by fire, yada yada yada. Well, all of Jerusalem was set on fire. Because the Romans put cast it on fire. And when the one point million Jews were killed, the Levitical priesthood was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. Okay? And not only that, at the recording of this in the first century, both Tacitus and Josephus. And another source, who were contemporaries of that time—that is to say, they lived in the first century—they said that they seen angels and chariots in the sky when when the Roman armies besieged Jerusalem. They seen them in the clouds. Now a lot of people don't like that and they'll say, "Oh, well, you know, <laughs> that's history, that's not Bible." Okay, but you accept George Washington's history? You accept what you ate for breakfast this morning as history? I'm not disputing that, but you don't want to accept actual history. That's well attested by scholars. You can't you can't cherry-pick what evidence you want you want to Accept and what what evidence you don't want accept. Look in Isaiah chapter nineteen verse one. And we must understand that the notion that Jesus that, that the Lord appearing on the clouds is actually in keeping with judgment and was used when a foreign army invaded God's people. Look at look at uh Isaiah chapter nineteen, these are the last two verses we'll read and then we'll close. Isaiah 19, verse 1. A prophecy against Egypt. Now, the reason why Egypt is here included is because the Assyrians... The uh, um, the Assyrians were going to come against uh, the people of God and, and they were going to try to rely on Egypt for help. Okay? So... Look at here, a prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. Oh, so the Egyptians were going to be destroyed. They were going to be subdued. But what sort of language is here used to describe that event? The language there used is to describe the Lord coming on the clouds. The same sort of language that is used in the New Testament. Behold, you shall see now you told the high priest, you shall see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom on the clouds with great glory and power. If that's not enough for you, look at Jeremiah chapter four, verse thirteen. Another prophetic witness, but this time it's not referring to the Assyrians, it's referring to the Babylonians. Uh, Jeremiah chapter four, verse thirteen. Look, now, the context is that the Babylonians were going to invade Jerusalem. Just like the Romans invaded Jerusalem. Look, he advances, and this is what it's talking about in this context. Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. Who's coming on the clouds? The Lord's coming on the clouds. And what is it, and the same, the same uh, uh, language is used in Thessalonians when dist- referring to the destruction of the antichrist, and the Lord will come on the clouds. And who did He say that? Who did He say? And that's in Thessalonians, right? With the with the trumpet call of God, with the voice of an archangel. It would interest you to know that in Tacitus, when he recorded this event in seventy A.D. You know what they heard they heard uh let me actually let me read it for you and this is uh within the public domain you can read this this is well attested history um so please don't say i'm speaking nonsense uh you can check it for yourself look up tacitus quotes Um. Yeah, that's how you spell Tacitus Where is this at? Give me one second Um, okay you know let me see give me one second because I want to read this to you Well, let, let me first read uh, Josephus. On the 21st day of the month of uh, Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomena appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable. We're not related by those that saw it. So there were multiple witnesses. And were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. In other words, also because of the events that were so important uh, you know, it, it seems reasonable to consider that such signs were given. He says, "For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers were in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities." What cities was referring to? Jerusalem. And this is exactly what Jesus said that would happen in Luke. He says, uh, "Your army shall surround you." Right. This is was prophesied. Now, look at what Tacitus said. Um uh, give me one second okay in the this is Tacitus. he recorded this. He says in the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict of glittering armor. A sudden lightning flashed from the clouds, lit up the temple. Okay, there's the discussion of the temple. We know this is Solomon's temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it. And in the same instant came rushing tumult of their departure. So, in other words, this invisible, huge... God-like sound occurred at the lightning of the, the light entered the temple. Armies, and angels, and chariots were seen in the sky, and it says we are leaving. So when that occurred, God left the temple, and the temple was destroyed. And this is what is this is what is mentioned. This is why in Revelation 21 the prophecy of of the the new temple and the new Jerusalem was consummated. And who is that temple? We are. I don't have time to go into all of that, but if this is not referring to what is there spoken of Matthew 24, what is your greater hypothesis? What is your greater theory postulation to better explain this well-attested event in history, both of which two credible historians who were witnesses of this in the first century attest to? So, what does it say in Thessalonians? That the, the high priest, the, the Antichrist, at the a voice of an archangel, he will be destroyed when he sees the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And then, who did Jesus say in Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 62, would see the Son of Man coming of the clouds? The high priest. Who had the authority to stand in the holy place? The high priest. Who was the, in the temple, in the holy place, according to Thessalonians? The Antichrist. Oh, so the Antichrist is the high priest. Which makes sense because the high priest was considered an anointed one. An anti Christos in the Greek means and uh, against Christ the anointed one or against anointing or opposed to or in place of. So since there was a new high priest which was Jesus, the old high priest didn't want to give up his authority and had therefore opposed the true Christ. But I I will rest there. I will close this out. Recording stopped.